So my last episode was about those four main practical habits and I wanted to address those meta habits which are not so much practical things you do but they are attitudes or ways of thinking and ways of approaching the topic of developing habits to create a healthier, more thriving self. So the first one is self-compassion, very necessary. All the habits we adopt are going to be beset with um, failures, lapses and negative self-talk. This is natural, it's perfectly acceptable, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. And if we're going to move forward, we've got to have some self-compassion for the fact that we're going to fall off the, the bandwagon. So let's say we create a habit that we're only that we're going to do our move nap combo every morning and then we wake up and we don't do it because we've forgotten or we don't feel like it or something's hurting or whatever and then after that we tend to go oh I'm a quitter I didn't do <laughs> I, I keep saying we do that everyone does that that's what I do I don't know if you do it or not but if you do I suggest some self compassion some look <laughs> I'm a beginner it's okay. It's not that serious. It's not that big of a deal. I'll do it tomorrow. Get off my back. That's my self-compassion. Uh, the second meta habit is to be patient, is to recognize that in the beginning, we may not even have the sensitivity, the noticing capacity, the dis distinguishing, differentiating capacity to tell that we're improving. We might be improving immensely, but we can't detect it because we're just not used to looking for improvements. We don't see them, we don't sense them, or they're too small for us. We want some massive dramatic improvement and we're not getting that. We're getting the tiny little incremental millimeter by millimeter steps. So my second meta habit is practice patience and accept that it's incremental and accept that you may not detect the changes straight away, but recognize that in six months, in 12 months, could be less, that's when you'll go, you'll look back and you'll think, well, hang on, I thought I wasn't improving, but I can do this now, or I'm doing this more often, or this thing that used to happen that I don't like is happening less and less often, less and less intensely, and it's quicker to get over. So that's my second meta habit. My third one is be prepared, get prepared. So if your change, for example, is a dietary one, then look in your pantry, think ahead, systematize. Don't just leave the house and forget to take something to eat that is acceptable and then become starving and buy something that's unacceptable. So think forward. And part of that is dealing with other people. People are going to say, why aren't you having this? Or would you like some of this? Or what's going on with you? You seem to be having this weird diet. People are going to say things and you're going to seem weird and you're going to seem different. So you have to prepare for that. You have to prepare with your supplies being ready. You have to prepare with your systems knowing what's going to happen, what will I do if this and what will I do if that, having thought ahead and you need to prepare what are you going to say to other people, if anything. You don't have to explain yourself to other people, you can just say, yeah, that's what I'm having. So be prepared is the third one and the fourth one is to track, observe and notice. So I talked about how we don't always have the sensitivity 
to notice the changes. Well, we to develop that sensitivity, it pays to actively take steps to develop that sensitivity. And one way to do that is to keep some kind of symptom score. It doesn't have to be on paper, but just mentally or on paper can help where the top three or top five annoying symptoms or things we're trying to improve and it could be getting a headache it could be having back pain it could be waking up feeling um, not very sharp or could be having stomach ache it could be your pulse rate it could be the way you breathe it could be anything you choose it depends on your situation and to track that casually not obsessively But keep noticing and observing. You can't track everything. There are a million and one things you could track. And if you try and track everything, you might get lost. But if you just pick certain things that are easily measured, that you decide on what is your measurement, what is your way of of noticing if that thing's got better, and a thing that's important to you that you actually do want to get rid of, and just keep track of that and watch it over time. I mean, with me, it's a bit vague. I haven't kept a record of it in writing, but um, I'm very conscious of my movement patterns. And so when I go up and down stairs, or if I go to climb a tree, or if I go to run, uh, or something like that, I know in myself how those things felt. I've, I've recorded it. It's, it's embedded in my memory. How those things have felt when they don't feel good and how they have felt when they do feel good. And remembering that it's not linear. So I don't, you don't just improve, you improve and go backwards and improve and go backwards. But remembering that and keeping track of the overall uh, improvement, I have noticed that I move better. It's not a lot, it's not dramatic, um, but I noticed that I have more confidence in my movement and that I'm aware much more because I'll um, do something well, like balancing. This is actually balance is my one main measurement. Um, when I get on top of the little barrier um, beam thing, some days I'm really wobbly and some days I'm much more stable. And overall, in the last five years, I'm more often stable and less often wobbly. But it's not like I'm never wobbly again. It's not like every day I'm 1% less wobbly than the day before and it keeps moving that way. No, it goes up and down and up and down. It's the overall thing. And I use that as a measure of both of my overall progress long term, but also of how am I today? Because sometimes we'll have these days when we're a little bit off and sometimes we'll have days when we're a little bit on and on my off days I don't balance as well so I use it as a way of noticing when I'm having an off day and when I'm having an off day to pay extra attention to what I'm doing to make sure I nourish and look after that and those are my four main meta habits attitudes of mind ways to think, ways, things to bring, mental perspectives to bring to the overall idea of creating practical habits uh, which build a better self. I also just wanted to talk about some of my non-habits that have helped me, which are things that I no longer do, 
which are kind of subliminal. I don't notice anymore that I don't do them. And yet I think they have been just as instrumental in helping me move forward as some of the active something to do habits. So the first one is I got rid of the TV several years ago. We have no TV. I don't even notice that we have no TV. I don't care about having no TV. And I got rid of it primarily because of moving and stuff like that. But I also was finding it was very insidious. And um, the ads are the most insidious thing. The ads that are in between shows, because some of the shows are quite good. Um, It saves an awful lot of time. It saves money. It saves space. It saves another device that can go wrong and might have to be fixed and has to be dusted and remote controls that get lost. It saves me being toxified by horrible messages that I don't agree with. Uh, And it saves screen time. That's one less blue light emitting device in the house. And it saves the environment in a very tiny way too because that's one less thing to be thrown away and fossil fuels and toxic heavy metals, etc. The other thing apart from the TV is I no longer listen to or watch or read the news. I've got no idea what's going on. I I don't uh, listen to the radio. I don't read the newspaper. I don't go online and look for what's happening. And I, when I first gave it up, I did it because the news used to stress me out. It used to stress me out partly because it's always about negative stuff and partly because it used to annoy me so much that they would say this thing had happened in Syria, but they wouldn't explain it properly. They would oversimplify it, make it out to be this really simplistic thing devoid of any detail. So you actually didn't understand what was going on in Syria. They told you something bad was going on in Syria, but they didn't give you enough information so that you knew what bad thing was going on in Syria. So you felt it's just like someone comes up to you and vomits a whole bunch of swear words and bad things at you and then walks away. And you're like, well, what what the fuck do you want me to do with that? Um, So you've been stressed, but you've got no benefit out of it. You've got no information out of it. There's nothing you can do from it. So that's why I originally gave up and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to find some other way of keeping abreast of things. And I never did. And now I, like, well, when there were bushfires around here, I knew there were bushfires because I could see it in the sky, I could smell it, and then I have this constant source of information from my patients and from the people in general that I talk to when I walk the dog and my neighbours. So it's not like I don't hear the news, that the, the news that affects me, the news that's important, the news that's in my environment. I do hear about it, not in much detail but enough to know whether I should evacuate the area or not and if it's happening in Syria I'm not sure if I need to know I probably ought to know and I haven't got round to addressing that so I don't know the answer to that one Um, no TV no news no furniture ever since I read Katie Bowman's book move your DNA and I understood that beds and couches and sofas and comfortable chairs and dining tables and chairs that we sit at at the dining table and desks and chairs that we sit at when we use the computer. All are forms of splinting us, of casting us, the way a flat, even footpath is a way of casting us because it only allows our ankle to move in a very small range. And when we sit, 
we're only allowing our hips, knees and ankles and back and pelvis and head and neck um, to be moving in a very small range and staying in that exact same angle for hours upon hours. Also, the softness of furniture means that we don't get feedback from the surface we're on, our contact with the surface, which is supposed to inform us of where we are in space and give us a constant low-level information that we have sitting bones, that we have vertebrae, that we have ribs, and where those things are in space and how big we are, what is our shape, how does our left side compare to our right side, all these things that make up our kinesthetic sense of our own body are missing when we're sitting or lying on soft things because there's no information from a soft thing. It's like looking in a mirror that's completely blurry and you can just see this vague outline of yourself. And so after I read her book, bit by bit, and also because I moved so much so it was easy to get rid of things, I now sleep on the floor. I do have a mattress. It's a camping mattress. Um, so it's not completely firm. I'd like to gradually transition to something firmer, but that's okay. Which means that when I wake up, I'm already on the ground. So I'm already going up and down off the ground at least twice a day, but probably more because I read in bed. And um, as I've mentioned before, getting up and down off the ground is a primary, primary indispensable human skill. Without the capacity to get up and down easily from the ground, we're barely human. Um, and the other thing about sleeping on the floor is I'm right next to my rug where I do DNS and Feldenkrais and roll around the floor doing movement practice. And so the easiest thing, the most intuitive thing to do in the morning is to roll out of bed and do movement on the floor. Whereas if I'm on a bed raised up off the floor, it's a little bit more of a barrier. Now that I've got in the habit, I probably could go back to a raised bed because that's my habit is to do stuff on the floor as soon as I wake up. But having no furniture was, was a big one. When I use my computer, obviously I rested on something and I'm sitting somewhere. But because the position I'm sitting on is on the floor or on a low stool, it's not particularly comfortable. So I'm constantly moving. Whereas if I'm on some soft thing that supports me, I'm not constantly moving. I'm still for large portions and I can stay there as long as I want because my body's not screaming at me to move. And so I'm less I'm moving less throughout the day if I have furniture. And the same with sitting at a dining table and eating your meal. I eat my meals on the floor or at the kitchen counter or I sit on the step outside the front of the house. And because I'm not sitting at a dining table, there's no temptation to just keep sitting there for hours, well, not hours, but sitting there for longer um, and being in that position, that sitting position, which there's nothing wrong with that position. That position is no more evil than any other position I could adopt. But what makes it become evil is when it's adopted for more than a certain percentage of my day. So if I'm adopting that right angles position of the hip, knees and ankles for 80% of my waking hours, that's pretty harmful. If I'm adopting it for 5% of my waking hours, then it's not. It's just a position like any other. 
Um, and I guess, I don't know where that percentage, you know, that harmful to non-harmful exactly is. It's somewhere between 5% and 80%. Um, so no TV, no news, no furniture and no talking. This is a, um, kind of a weird one to most people, I'd say. But I was finding this thing and so was my son and we were talking about it for weeks is that I might be, well, both of us, anyone, might be researching something on the internet, answering emails, um, trying to get my lunch ready for work, just doing something that I'm engaged in. And then if all those activities I'm talking about are frequently and unpredictably interrupted by someone asking me, have I thought about what to have for dinner or um, asking me to do them a favour or requesting it, particularly if it's a decision, if it's a question that requires a decision, that's especially disruptive and interruptive. And when you're interrupted in those tasks, it actually takes, it takes several seconds because you stop what you're doing and you engage with the person. Then you make the decision or whatever it is that they want. Then it takes a little bit of time to re-engage with the task. Plus, there's been that gap. So the task is now disrupted. The task is now going to take you much longer to complete and be complete at a less satisfactory level than simply that amount of time that you lost through the conversation. Plus, if you had to make a decision during that time that you lost for the conversation, then that's your decision-making uh, fatigue taken, um, an extra bit taken out of, uh, out of your reserves of decision-making ability for the day. And it's not even a decision that benefits you, it's a decision that benefits the person. So long story short, there's better ways of explaining what I just did, but you get the gist. If you're doing something in a focused way and you get interrupted, it has a big knock-on effect. And if you get interrupted frequently during the same task or frequently during each task you do throughout the day, that adds up to a significant amount of extra stress, extra thinking inefficient. It's inefficient. It's highly inefficient. It's like bleeding slightly all day long and then wondering why you're tired at the end of the day. And so we instituted a no talking rule. So unless it's important, it has to be decided, you know, I'm leaving the house and I must know before I leave the house whether A or B, unless it's something like that, we don't talk to each other until the evening. So of course, um, as time's gone on, we we have found that oh well he must he must be all right to talk to because he's busy preparing his lunch and um, listening to a song so I'll ask him if it's okay if he um, for us to have a chat or vice versa if he sees that I'm outside and I'm just sitting there and I'm not particularly doing something he might say is it all right to talk or can I have a chat with you don't always ask permission but we tend to um, just as an act of courtesy, because maybe that person's working on some mental problem that you can't tell and they don't want to be interrupted. So I think it's nice to ask first. Um, and we mostly just in the morning, we wake up and we actually completely ignore each other. We don't say good morning. We don't, we don't have any interaction until the evening, although there is often one around lunchtime or around the middle of the day, just informally. And I'm loving it because it frees up so much of my mental energy and so much of my time and I get so much more done. And you'd think it would lead to this kind of distant relationship and this 
non-communication and it has the opposite effect because when we communicate we make sure that what we're saying is important or interesting or valuable or connective we don't just talk about the weather or talk about shit as much just for the sake of making conversation I mean what is after all all that oh how are you going did you sleep well I mean yes it's nice and I'm not I'm not um I don't want it to, to sound like there's no uh, affection, that there's no warmth, because there's a lot of that. But if anything, it's increased because the value of our um, communication, the importance of that period of communication is highlighted now. So there's not wastage in, in making words and saying, saying words and making sounds that are actually meaningless and don't connect anything. So those are my... Non-habits, um, no TV, no news, no furniture and no talking. No talking isn't true, it's not no talking, it's selective talking. So anyway, I don't know if this has been interesting, but I hope it has. And I'm going to have a fantastic day and I hope you do as well.